Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 28 of the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. I'm Nick Carrisco, fantasy football analyst at fantasylawguy.com, at fantasylawguy on Instagram. Week one was so much fun. What did we learn? Hakeem dropped the ball! Hakeem dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? We'll talk about playoffs. Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. Yesterday was truly a great day. One of the best days of the 2020 year, although that is not saying very much. NFL football is back in full force and effect, and I watched the Red Zone channel for the noon slate, which featured nine games. It was awesome. Reminded me of old times. Great past memories. And then for the afternoon portion, I mainly watched the Saints and Bucks game, of course, but I went to the other two games during commercials, and then there was Cowboys-Rams last night. It was a full day of Sunday football, and it was incredible. Truly missed, but enough fluff. We have to talk about your fantasy teams. Fantasy football was played yesterday. Points were scored. It was a high-scoring week one with several breakout performances, and it's only less than 116th of the season so far, but my draft guide is looking really smart on a lot of things and really dumb on some others, and that's typical, and today I'm going to recap the games from a fantasy football perspective. What did I get right? What did I get wrong about my week one preview and about my season-long outlooks for play players? It's too early to throw in the towel sometimes, but I can admit defeat, and we can also admit when things are looking good. But I'm not here just to tell you about what happened. I want to focus on why things happened, provide the ever-important context that goes so far beyond just box scores and statistics. And I also want to tell you if I expect certain things to continue, certain performances to be indicative of future success, or whether I think they were just a fluke based on usage. So you can plan in advance for future moves in managing your fantasy football teams. So I will be providing a game-by-game analysis here, and I'll highlight everything that I think is important. And there's a lot to cover today, so let's get started with my favorite team. The New Orleans Saints defeated Tom Brady's Tampa Bay Buccaneers 34-23. I mentioned in yesterday's preview pod that both run defenses in this game were outstanding. So I'm not starting Fournette and I'm not starting Ronald Jones. That proved to be a good call. Rojo did get the start and he did get the first opportunity as expected. But he did very little with that opportunity. And it wasn't necessarily his fault. 17 carries, 66 scoreless yards, 16 receiving yards. It's worth noting that he was the bell cow for this game. Fournette just signed with the team, barely played. LaShawn McCoy barely played on passing downs. So I think we can actually feel comfortable using Rojo in fantasy in better matchups until he concedes this job. And Fournette is just a stash at this point. I do think Fournette's going to end up taking this job by like midseason, as I've mentioned several times. I think slowly we'll start to see Fournette get more and more involved. But we did not see that here. 
So Ronald Jones is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers back going forward, and I think we can feel comfortable using him in better matchups. But the Saints' run defense has been very strong for the last three seasons in a row. The Saints have not given up a 100-yard rusher, fun fact, in like 40-plus straight games. It's been a ridiculous streak for the Saints. So yeah, we knew kind of going in, and I mentioned going in that this was a tough game to play running backs. Tampa Bay's run defense is also very, very stout, and we'll get to that in a second. But for the Bucks here, Mike Evans, true game time call. And I mentioned that I'm not playing him whether he suits up or not. Marshawn Lattimore has had his number in a, in a very big way over the last few games against the Saints. Four of Mike Evans' five worst games in his entire career have come against the Saints, and it was a possibility coming out of the hamstring injury that he wouldn't be 100%. He may just be a decoy, and that's kind of precisely what happened. Lattimore erased Evans. Don't get me wrong. He wasn't just a decoy. Evans looked healthy enough, but one catch, it was like a two-yard touchdown in garbage time, and it was even a pick play that left Demario Davis, the linebacker, in coverage there, so it wasn't even in Lattimore's coverage. So Lattimore just erased him for this game, and he just really, gosh, he just really owns Mike Evans in this in this series. But he and Mike Evans and Tom Brady had a miscommunication where Evans correctly actually identified the soft spot on his own and sat in it, not physically sat down, but kind of just slowed up to try to get the ball in that gap. But Brady thought he was going to keep going, and that interception was on Brady. That mistake was on Brady, and Arians agreed after the game, saying that Brady misidentified uh, reading the coverage there. And you're going to get miscommunications early being on a new team like Brady is. And Brady had been played in the same system for 15 years, basically. It was one of the reasons I was down on him in fantasy football this year. He lacked chemistry in a COVID-shortened offseason. But we will talk about Brady in a second. Chris Godwin, I mentioned in my preview pod that he had the best matchup against the Saints because Tampa Bay would use him in the slot. And that's where the Saints are weakest with Pat Robinson and P.J. Williams. P.J. Williams was inactive for this game. And Janoris Jenkins and Lattimore did a great job on the outside. So Godwin, most of his damage was avoiding their outside coverage. And Godwin had six catches on seven targets, 79 scoreless yards. And he was checked out for a possible concussion late. So I have to monitor that, his status for week two. And although I was down on Chris Godwin and Mike Evans versus consensus experts, I don't think it's time to panic. It's early, and there's going to be chemistry issues. And they're going to get better as the season progresses. And this was just really a tough matchup here more than anything. I also mentioned on yesterday's show that Tampa Bay's tight ends would probably work in a three-way rotation with O.J. Howard, Gronk, and Cameron Brayton. I'm not starting either of them, or any of them, I should say. And we got some clarity on the usage, and that was that my assumption was correct. It was a three-way rotation, mainly featuring O.J. Howard and Rob Gronkowski in the passing game. O.J. Howard did score six targets Four catches, 36 yards, and one touchdown. I actually mentioned in yesterday's preview episode that if I was going to start any of these Tampa Bay tight ends, it would be O.J. Howard, and that might have been a surprise to some. But here I'm going to keep steady with that. O.J. Howard looked pretty good in this game. I don't know if he's rostering yet, but I do know that I would be pretty hesitant on rostering Gronk at this point. Maybe you give it one more chance, but my fear going into the season was that experts were going to try to force Gronkowski to be a thing. I didn't see it then. I still don't see it now. I'd rather O.J. Howard if choosing between the two. Cameron Brate did not play much at all. He is irrelevant for fantasy football. I mentioned yesterday also that Brady was a middling start in this game because of the tough matchup, and Brady was kind of middling. He looked okay. He had a great opening drive where I did think to myself, I will admit, I was like, oh, shit, maybe I just underestimated this entire team 
from a real-life perspective and fantasy perspective. But there's going to be some growing pains. And we saw it, right? Like, he still posted a decent fantasy line thanks to game flow. He was trailing all game. Three touchdowns, one of them rushing 239 yards. But the pick six was ugly. And Brady faced a lot of pressure in this game. And I think Brady will be fine, but not great for fantasy football. Tom Tampa Bay does get a cure-all next week against the Carolina Panthers, who they are facing in week two. Uh, in the Saints preview, I mentioned that Michael Thomas dominated Tampa Bay twice last season. Usually when we see that, you see a team really sell out to make sure that they don't let that player beat them. And Tampa Bay did exactly that. They shifted the coverage over to Michael Thomas, making sure that Thomas wasn't going to have a good game. And this gave Jared Cook and Emmanuel Sanders opportunities like I expected and mentioned on this podcast. The Emmanuel Sanders, the new addition, he caught a short touchdown Uh, But he's not startable yet in fantasy. And Jared Cook, he was used exactly like I expected him to be. He was a possession target for most of the game until Breeze did find him down the sideline late in the game for his longest completion of the day. And I really loved the way that Cook was used. I would be very optimistic if I drafted Jared Cook in the middle rounds. And I think he's going to be a top 10 tight end this season. I would keep him active. Uh, The Bucs made sure... Michael Thomas had his worst game in quite some time. Three catches, 17 yards, no touchdowns. That was brutal. I forgot to mention Cook's stat line. Seven targets, five catches, 80 yards, no touchdowns. But Michael Thomas, man, that was his worst game in, I mean, since I can remember, honestly. I I know there was that Denver game. I think he was a rookie when he fumbled twice, but that was a long time ago, man. I mean, Michael Thomas, he hasn't been shut down like this in years. So it was pretty surprising, even with the extra defensive attention that the Bucks were able to really kind of put a stranglehold on Michael Thomas there. But there are better days ahead for him. Of course, it's no reason to panic, but it is a reason to not expect those 180 targets and you know the NFL record-breaking 153 catches or whatever he had last season when he broke Marvin Harrison's single-season record for catches. It is worth noting, however, that Michael Thomas kind of limped off late in this game. It looked like he just kind of like twisted his ankle or something like that. But that's going to be a situation we need to monitor closely because he just kind of limped off late in the game. He's not really a player that likes to show a lot of pain. But we will see if anything is made of that. Hopefully he is healthy and ready to go soon. Drew Brees, mostly a game manager in this one. He barely tested the Bucs deep. The Saints knew they couldn't really run the ball on the Buccaneers' stout run defense. And early in the game, they kind of used short completions with no yak, no yards after catch. That was kind of their run plays, if you will. And the Bucks were just not missing tackles yesterday. And part of Drew Brees' subpar fantasy day was because the Bucks actually played really good defense yesterday for the, for, most, for the most part. And the other part is honestly because I think a lack of arm strength to push the ball downfield. I've talked about this for a while. Drew Brees, he missed some throws in this one. The Saints offense has slowly morphed into a short area style over the years. Drew Brees' A dot has declined for the last, his average depth of target has declined for the last three seasons in a row. It was no better on Sunday. I think that this is going to limit his fantasy upside. Uh, the Saints are such a good team that as long as Drew Brees minimize mistakes, the Saints should win games. So I'm worried that he's going to play more of a game manager role. He's going to throw for maybe even 30 touchdowns this year, but I think the yardage could be lower than we've seen in quite some time. And I'm worried about Drew Brees' ceiling, but he is a very safe option. So I'm not panicking. Uh, But yeah, it's definitely worth monitoring there. The Saints running game, also very interesting here and a little bit concerning. Latavius Murray 
out-carried Alvin Kamara 15-12 to yesterday, and Murray did a lot more on his carries, 48 rushing yards compared to Kamara's low 16 rushing yards on 12 attempts. It seemed like every time Kamara got a handoff or a toss, there were several Bucks defenders in the backfield. I don't think Kamara looked particularly bad in this game. I just think he had really nowhere to run when he got the ball, and I don't know if the Bucks kind of knew when Kamara was in that he was going to get the ball. I'm not really sure if there was a tell there, but Murray was the better bruiser between the tackles, and it was still not easy running on this defense. Murray only averaged 3.2 yards a carry, but I can't really tell if the lack of Kamara rushing usage compared to Murray was matchup-based because Tampa Bay is just so tough to run on and they needed a grinder in between the tackles and Kamara is a little softer than Murray, or was it because the Saints wanted to save Kamara for the playoffs and keep him healthy unlike last season? Or was it because Kamara just signed his contract extension the other day? I'm not really sure, but Kamara had two red zone scores, which kind of saved his day. His long reception was on a trick play late in the game to seal the game with Taysom Hill finding him wide open down the sideline on a, uh, uh, again, on a trick play. Kamara was also inches away from a third touchdown in the final possession, but that was overturned. We're seeing the positive touchdown regression already, so I'm not really worried about Kamara, although I think Latavius Murray, it looks like he might have a bigger role than expected, but as long as Kamara is getting the red zone usage, then that is really all that matters because he's also getting catches as well. The Saints defense looked like the real deal, and I would continue to start them in fantasy. I actually think they're like a top six fantasy option right now. There's not a lot of great defenses out there other than, you know, the Bills and the Steelers and the, I guess, the Patriots and the Ravens. The Saints are right in that mix or right under that mix, I should say. Overall, the game went, this game went very much as I expected and as I stated it would in my preview on Sunday morning that I, preview podcast on Sunday morning that I gave. Obviously, I'm very familiar with with the Saints. I follow every team like I do the Saints, but I'm more familiar with the Saints seeing it as I am a fan of the team and have been since I was 10 years old. But let's get to some things that I was surprised about. The Arizona Cardinals upset the San Francisco 49ers 24-20. to And it's not like I didn't think the Cardinals could pull off the upset. I mentioned that the 49ers defense was, and the team as a whole, the rushing attack, their defense was likely going to decline this season. We did see a little bit of that, although this was a low-scoring game. Kyler Murray, 230 passing yards, one touchdown, one interception, but he had 13 carries for 91 rushing yards and a touchdown. Kyler Murray actually had 100 rushing yards in this game at one point, but two kneel downs, like very far back, resulted in him getting ending, ending the game with only 91 rushing yards, and that just sucks for leagues with bonuses for... 100-yard rushing games like my, I know in my leagues that I commission, I get a 2.5-point bonus for 100-yard games rushing. So that just kind of sucks for him there. He had it, and he lost it when he was kneeling down. The real story of this game for Arizona was DeAndre Hopkins. And how wrong do I look about fading D-Hop? Man, that is just brutal for me. I mean, shortened off season, barely practiced with Kyler Murray because of a contract dispute. Receivers historically declining in production after changing teams. None of that mattered. All of those were reasons that I uh, faded. DeAndre Hopkins, none of that mattered. DeAndre Hopkins was dominant and was just flooded with targets by Murray in this fast-paced Cliff Kingsbury's offense. It looks like a match made in heaven. DeAndre Hopkins had a whopping 40% target share, 29 PPR points, and he even went down at the one-yard line at one point, so he almost scored, and he had a pass 
or had a catch negated by penalty in this game. 16 targets. And the next closest receiver on this team had five targets. DeAndre Hopkins looks like he's going to be a total stud. And I want to apologize in advance. Not even in advance. I wish it was in advance. I want to apologize in week one. Because you can just tell he's about to have an amazing season here. And I want to apologize for advising you to avoid DeAndre Hopkins in drafts. I'm already chalking that up as a huge L. And speaking of L's, what a disappointing game for Christian Kirk. Kirk was obviously overshadowed by DeAndre Hopkins' 40% target share and 16 targets. There was a few deep shots that Kyler Murray tried to take with Christian Kirk, but the goose egg was extremely disappointing. I'm holding Christian Kirk in 12-team formats, but I'm probably cutting him in 10-teamers. I think he's going to be boomer bust each week, and I'm hoping teams will focus the extra attention on DeAndre Hopkins now that they've had the film and they've seen this, and I'm hoping that will create opportunities for Christian Kirk. That's my optimistic view of this, but he is kind of on the borderline for me, and I think he's droppable in 10-team formats. Larry Fitzgerald caught some passes, but I don't think he's fantasy relevant at this point. Kenyon Drake. Boy, I'm really starting to dislike the Drake. Hate the Drake. (laughs) Played a pivotal role in the week one upset. He did score the game-winning touchdown on a one-yard plunge up the gut before kind of sealing the game with a first down late. But Chase Edmonds was more involved than I expected, and I expected Chase Edmonds to be a pretty valuable handcuff this season. But Edmonds totaled 45 yards, and he actually had the he actually had a touchdown, a receiving touchdown early in this game, and he had nine touches. Uh, still, Kenyon Drake out carried Edmonds 16 to six, and was Arizona's lead back. I think this was a tough opening matchup against the Niners for Kenyon Drake, so I'm not uh, too too concerned about that. But again, Chase Edmonds obviously needs to be stashed or handcuffed if you have Kenyon Drake. Honestly, I would be pretty aggressive towards trading for him to make sure that if I have Kenyon Drakes, that Edmonds is on my team as well. For the 49ers, Jimmy Garoppolo. Not seriously. What's your name, man? Jimmy Garoppolo. My name is Jimmy Garoppolo. Was horrible in this game. And don't let the box score fool you. 259 passing yards, two touchdowns, zero interceptions. That is quite deceptive of how bad and out of rhythm Garoppolo really looked. He was overthrowing wide open receivers. He missed a touchdown because he overthrew somebody in the back of the end zone. He was tossing some ducks, like just 50-50, just prayer balls down the sideline. And he was checking down with open receivers far too often. Garoppolo did find Raheem Mostert for a 76-yard touchdown down the sideline. And he did hit him in stride. But other than that throw, it was pretty bad, especially in the final three quarters of this game. It actually cost the Niners the game. The 49ers just couldn't move the ball and they kept letting Arizona back into it with constant punts. George Kittle's injury near halftime didn't help. I'll get to that in a second. Nor did Brandon Ayuk and Debo Samuel, the starting two receivers for the Niners, being out for this game. But yeah, not a good look for Jimmy G in a pretty soft matchup against a bad Cardinals defense. Uh, Bad news for my boy George Kittle. Five targets, Four catches, 44 yards, no scores. Against Arizona, one of the worst tight end defending defense is in the league last year. Sorry, they were the worst tight end defending defense in the league last year. That's not the bad news, though. He exited with a knee injury in the second quarter. 
and Kittle went to the locker room right before halftime to get what looked like a hyper-extended knee checked out. He did return to action. He told his coach that he was good to go, but he got zero opportunities in the second half. That's right. Every single one of Kittle's stat line, all of his catches came in the first half. So he again said he was fine in the post-game pressure, but I'm a little concerned. about. I'm very concerned about this, honestly. And Kittle, he had a nine-yard rush as well, but it's just not a great start from what I thought was going to be a monster season from George Kittle, mainly because I thought he was going to be healthy this year. And that just doesn't look like it's going to be the case. I think he's going to be playing through this knee injury, and he could even miss uh, some time. So stay tuned for that. But yeah, not looking good. For George Kittle and that was a blow-up spot for him too against this Cardinals defense and he just really burned uh, teams including uh, three of my own so moving on Raheem Mostert I kept saying that Mostert was a late riser in on my draft board and I kind of wish that I had picked him on some teams because I had zero shares of Raheem Mostert and, and in my bold predictions podcast I said that Mostert was not going to be a fluke and I kind of hedged my bet there of not picking Mostert by saying he's going to rush for at least 1,000 yards. Mostert looked very good. 15 carries, 56 yards, not that great. But five targets, four catches, 95 receiving yards and a touch. A lot of that was on a 76-yard receiving score where it's kind of a wheel route. He caught the pass in stride where he outran a defender, which was great because Mostert was not used in the receiving game last year. And then I thought that Jarek McKinnon was going to come in here and play the receiving role. Jarek McKinnon did have um, 44 total yards on eight touches and a score. So he had a nice day in his return. Tevin Coleman only saw five touches. But Mostert was kind of a bell cow here, honestly. He, he was at least the primary back. And again, that's so valuable in this Kyle Shanahan offense. And Mostert also... Could have had a bigger day. Jimmy Garoppolo missed him on a possible receiving touchdown. And Moser could have had another touchdown. So a third touchdown, but he was tripped up before a rushing touchdown close to the goal line. So yeah, this was a big day for Moser. And even though it wasn't like a huge fantasy day, it was a nice fantasy day. It is a big day from his perspective and future outlook going forward. It looks like he is going to be the real deal and stick as the 49ers starting in primary running back. I think Jarek McKinnon, who looked really good, is going to get most of the receiving work as the season progresses. But Tevin Coleman's likely going to be phased out. But so far, so good if you drafted Raheem Mostert in like round seven of your leagues. And I wish I had done that. And as for the other three o'clock game, Joe Burrow's Bengals fell just short of the Los Angeles Chargers 13 to 16. And Joe Burrow 193 passing yards, not that great, no passing scores, an interception, but he did save his fantasy day with 46 rushing yards and a touchdown. Burrow got the scoring started. He had an impressive like 18-yardish run where he kind of saw the defensive line rush all to the outside, so he just stepped up immediately. It almost looked like a quarterback design run, and it could have been, and he patiently waited in open space for his blocker to get ahead of him. It was a very veteran move before kind of making a move and sprinting to the end zone. It was a really nice play. Uh, But Burrow struggled after that, especially through the air in a tough matchup against the Chargers. He was running for his life in the first half. The Chargers uh, defensive line was having their way with the Cincy offensive line. And he had a crucial poor decision interception in the fourth quarter. And he also overthrew A.J. Green in the 
end zone, and Burrow did not like that throw. He said that that throw was a throw that a high schooler should have made, and Burrow, he did give his team a chance to win this game with a, a great, impressive final drive that set his team up for a field goal, but then their kicker had this calf cramp as he was going to kick. It was just kind of a crazy ending there. It wasn't for the win, but it would have forced overtime. So just an interesting start for Joe Burrow, but most of all, he did struggle. But again, it was a tough spot against the Chargers. Very talented defense. His favorite target was A.J. Green. A.J. Green, nine targets, five catches, 51 receiving yards. So it wasn't a great day from a fantasy perspective, but it looks good for the future. A.J. Green had a 25% target share. And again, he was Burrow's favorite target in Burrow's first start. And this was a talented cornerback group for the Chargers. I said not to start A.J. Green and not to start Tyler Boyd in my preview pod uh, on Sunday, or yesterday, I should say. And Green actually had a touchdown called back because of offensive pass interference. And again, Joe Burrow overthrew him on that poor end zone throw that a quote-unquote high schooler should have made. So Green actually called Joe Burrow special after the game, and this was Green's first game since the mid-2018 season. I would feel pretty good, even though I got like 10 PPR points, I'd feel pretty good about A.J. Green moving forward. I don't know if I want to say the same as Tyler Boyd. Tyler Boyd, four catches, 33 yards, zero scores. Tyler Boyd was invisible for the vast majority of this game. It was a tough spot for the rookie quarterback Joe Burrow in a daunting matchup. And it was tough for Tyler Boyd too. Casey Hayward and Chris Harrison covered. That's why I said not to start him. I did ignore my advice. I had to start him in two leagues. So I didn't have a better bench option. And that burned me for sure. Because Tyler Boyd, not only was he just draped in those cornerback coverage, but Burrow just didn't look to him often. Boyd's 14% target share was very weak. And A.J. Green, again, was the clear-cut number one receiver. So hopefully things open up for Tyler Boyd. He's not a drop by any means yet. But he is somebody that I'd probably rather on my bench until he produces. And the hope is that he will as Joe Burrow progresses throughout the season. Okay, last night, the Rams surprisingly won a low-scoring game against the Dallas Cowboys. And I thought this game was going to be fast-paced and exciting and high-scoring and potential shootout. It most certainly was not. It was kind of a barn burner, honestly, where the defenses played a lot better than expected and the offenses were very very conservative so it was kind of actually a pretty boring lame game and Jared Goff was kind of a letdown or he was a letdown I should say and it's not that he was so bad he threw for 275 yards which is pretty good but he had zero touchdowns and he had an interception and Goff just kind of game managed the Rams to this win and the disappointing part was that Goff was in position to throw two touchdowns, but Malcolm Brown had two goal line touchdowns with a one and two yard line respectively. So the Rams just didn't need Goff to do much. And that was kind of his chance, those goal line opportunities. And Malcolm Brown just vultured them. So the Rams just kind of sat on their lead in the fourth quarter and allowed their defense in running game, which was very good, to take over. And they did. Uh, Robert Woods was really the only wide receiver or pass catcher for the Rams that had a good game. Eight targets, six catches, 105 yards. And Woods was the clear number one target for Jared Goff. And really the only receiver getting open. And he had most of his catches early. The Rams ran the ball 40 times or more in this game. So, yeah, tough night for Cooper Cup. Only five targets. Four catches, 40 yards. 
And Cup just wasn't featured in this game despite just signing his three-year contract extension. Again, the Rams really run heavy with 40 rushing attempts in this game. Tyler Higby also a letdown. Higby was the number three option in the passing game. He, he didn't disappear. He had 40 yards on three catches. But Goff just didn't throw a touchdown and just wasn't used and Higby just wasn't used much although I will say I thought Higby looked pretty good when he did have the ball I think he's a good player but we need more opportunities than when the Rams are running 40 times a game I don't think that's going to continue I think the Rams running game will regress as will their defense but it just wasn't there in week one and it is worth noting that Gerald Everett fellow tight end got hurt in this game he had a back injury he left the game it's unclear how serious that is but if he is out for future games that would boost Tyler Higby's stock big time so we'll we'll wait and see for that pretty big letdown game for Tyler Higby in week one which is a shame because I liked Higby a lot this offseason but we will see what happens with that Everett injury and going forward Uh, the surprise of this game was Malcolm Brown and to a lesser extent Cam Akers but Malcolm Brown 18 carries 79 rushing yards two touchdowns and four targets three catches 31 receiving yards against the Dallas Cowboys and Sean McVay kind of rode the hot hand here because Malcolm Brown did not start this game and Malcolm Brown dominated third downs over Cam Akers and Daryl Henderson. Cam Akers 14 rushes for 38 scoreless yards. Daryl Henderson barely played and again Akers and Henderson lost red zone and third down snaps to Malcolm Brown. I mentioned that Malcolm Brown punched in two goal line scores and Akers actually played 20 fewer snaps than Malcolm Brown. Malcolm Brown looked better than Akers as well, and that's why Shanahan did ride the hot hand and just kind of rode their running game for most of the game. So Malcolm Brown definitely worth a waiver wire pickup. I'll have my waiver wire show tomorrow, but he's going to be one of the top waiver wire options for this week. Cam Akers, I think this is actually, he didn't have a good game, and I mentioned that we should not be starting him yet, which is good, but Cam Akers, this is actually good for his future. The Rams were able to run the ball, and I think over time, Sean McVay does want Cam Akers to get going. So I think this is a good first game for Cam Akers, even though he didn't look special. So moving on to the Cowboys, who we all thought, or I especially thought, that they were going to have probably the best offense in the NFC. And Kellen Moore, such an aggressive play caller last year. They were always throwing downfield. I don't. I, it looked like Kellen Moore was still calling the plays, but there was definitely a little bit of a Mike McCarthy conservative influence on this Cowboys offense it it appeared so at least and I don't want to say definitely but it really looked like it and the Cowboys were very very conservative and a lot of that might have been because they were starting right tackle undrafted free agent Terrence Steele who was just kind of getting blown up in this game because Lyle Collins is on short-term IR he's missing the first three games he's their normal starting right tackle so the offensive line did not play well so the, it looked like the Cowboys were being more conservative, maybe for that reason. But Dak Prescott, not a great game. 266 yards, one touchdown. He had 30 rushing yards. Now, it is worth noting that on one rushing play, Dak Prescott got all the way to the one-yard line, and then Zeke plunged it in, so he could have had two touchdowns easily in this game. But it's also worth noting that most of Prescott's passing yardage came in a fourth quarter kind of where they were trailing. It was kind of garbage time-ish, even though the score was close. So... Yeah, not a good opening for the Cowboys passing game. Amari Cooper had a whopping 14 targets and 10 catches, 81 yards. That was more than I thought Cooper was going to get. I thought he was going to be shattered by Jalen Ramsey. Ramsey did cover him, but he didn't follow him around. I think that Amari Cooper appeared to be the top 
Cowboys wide receiver, especially down the stretch when the Cowboys needed plays in the fourth quarter. Dak was pretty much locking on to Amari Cooper. So all systems go. He looks pretty healthy. I know he was kind of dealing with an injury issue going into this game. So yeah, all systems go for Amari Cooper. I think even in this down game where he still gets you 20 PPR points is a good sign for the future. C.D. Lamb looked better than I thought. Six targets, five catches, 59 yards. I don't want to say he looked better than I thought, but he was used more than I thought. Lamb played 59 snaps, and that's only 10 fewer than Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup. And the good news for CeeDee Lamb, who had a great opening start, but then kind of faded in the second half. The good news is that Blake Jarwin tore his ACL. And, you know, I wish the best for Blake Jarwin's recovery here, but that does help CeeDee Lamb's fantasy outlook. It should generate more looks for CeeDee Lamb. And Michael Gallup as well, who had a pretty bad game here. Five catches, three, excuse me, five targets, three catches, 50 yards, no touchdowns. Gallup finished behind Cooper and Lamb in receiving yards, and his longest catch at the end of the game was called back by penalty, and it was a questionable offensive pass interference by Gallup. He did have a little push-off on Jalen Ramsey, but it was a long catch. It would have gone for about 40 yards and set the Cowboys up to get a game-tying field goal or even go for the win. It was a pretty controversial call, and I know the Rams are no strangers to winning games on cheap pass interference calls. But I would say it was kind of a 50-50 call there, unlike in the Saints' pass interference call. But it was just not a good night overall for the Cowboys' passing attack. And then Blake Jarwin again uh, towards ACL, so he is out for the season. Ezekiel Elliott, 22 rushes, 96 rushing yards, one touchdown rushing. And then he also had a touchdown receiving on 31 receiving yards. Great game for Ezekiel Elliott. And the Cowboys were just kind of riding him and feeding Zeke with the offensive line issues and with maybe under new coach Mike McCarthy. He's more conservative than Kellen Moore. Uh, Zeke got one goal line plunge, and then he made a great cut uh, on the sideline, cutting inside, uh, juking out two defenders who over-pursued, and then Zeke kind of dove into the end zone on his reception. So the downgraded offensive line wasn't a huge problem for Zeke. He had a good game against the Rams as we expected him to. All right, moving on to the noon slate here. There's a massive nine game noon slate here let's get to that let's start with the let's see who should we start with let's start with the Seattle Seahawks they took down the Atlanta Falcons 38 to 25 on the road Russell Wilson Mr. Unlimited his name his name's Mr. 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 Unlimited yeah you gotta be unlimited you know you gotta have a thought process of being unlimited He was unlimited indeed in this game. Wilson was sensational. He completed 88% of his throws. He was like 31 for 35 or something crazy like that. And he just was kind of let loose. Like old school offensive coordinator, Brian Schottenheimer, he kind of just let Russ cook and that's what we've wanted. Will the Seahawks continue to open it up and, and allow Russ to control this offense? I'm not really sure, but it was a great game in week one. It was a great sign that they kind of blew out the Falcons here. Uh, I would be very happy if I had Russell Wilson on my team yesterday and for the future. So hopefully they don't revert back to their ways. Chris Carson and Carlos Hyde, I think, combined for less than 15 carries despite the Seahawks winning by multiple scores like throughout the day, which is so far much of a cry away from what Brian Schottenheim, the offensive coordinator, normally does here where they just kind of limit Russ Wilson. Uh, He found DK Metcalf down the sideline for a beautiful touchdown, Russ did. Chris Carson on two screen touchdowns, and Greg Olson was his fourth touchdown. 
And I'm hoping that this is a sign of things to come. It was a soft matchup against the Atlanta Falcons, but four touchdowns for Russell Wilson, zero interceptions, 322 passing yards. Great day for Russell Wilson. Tyler Lockett was perfect in this game. Not a huge fantasy day, but perfect in efficiency. Eight targets, eight catches, 92 yards, no scores. Just a very typical efficient game for Tyler Lockett. He and Metcalf saw equal usage, but Lockett did catch more passes. And the Seahawks, again, were very pass-happy against Atlanta, despite leading most of the game. DK Metcalf, same situation there. He had eight targets as well. But four catches, 95 yards, and a touchdown that I mentioned was just this amazing throw, this perfect throw by Russell Wilson down the sideline. DK Metcalf got open in the third quarter. Metcalf did have a horrific drop on third down Uh, in the third quarter of this game as well, but he did make up for it. That drop would have gone for about 20 receiving yards. Uh, Chris Carson, six carries, 21 yards rushing. So not much there, but receiving, he was outstanding. Six catches, 45 receiving yards, and two touchdowns. They were both screen passes. One was on play action. One was just a straight-up screen. Carlos Hyde did actually have more carries than Chris Carson in this game. He had seven carries compared to Carson's six. And Carlos Hyde also had a goal line score late in the game. It looked like Carlos Hyde might be used as kind of a closer of sorts, which is kind of concerning and even more concerning if the Seahawks are going to let Russ cook and they're not going to have a lot of rushing attempts. But as long as Carson's involved in the passing game and getting red zone looks, which he did, he will be fine. And Carson, good news is he looked very healthy coming off his offseason hip surgery. So let's move to the Falcons side of the ball. Matt Ryan, garbage time king of week one here 450 passing yards for matt ryan he's making my uh, bold prediction that matt ryan would be the only quarterback to throw for 5,000 yards and lead the nfl in passing yards this year he's making that look pretty smart through one week of course two touchdowns one interception against the seattle seahawks the score was 14 to 3 in favor of seattle in the first quarter and 28 to 12 in favor of seattle at halftime so ryan spent all afternoon throwing And he found Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley, and even Russell Gage. All of them had at least nine catches, and all of them had at least 100 receiving yards. So this was just an outstanding game flow for Matt Ryan. And before you like chalk it up to, oh yeah, it was just all in garbage time. That's why Matt Ryan was so good. No, this is part of the equation with Matt Ryan. This is why I loved him in fantasy this year. This is why I drafted him on three of my teams. Matt Ryan, you know, playing in that dome. And having the bad defense that the Falcons clearly do and having a lack of running game, although Todd Gurley did play better than I thought. But this is part of the equation. Matt Ryan, we know he can shred in garbage time, and that's exactly what he did. And he looked healthy. He was moving well. And even his interception was just kind of a Hail Mary. He just kind of tore up the Seahawks in garbage time in this game. And he's got great receivers to do it. Julio Jones, 12 targets, 9 catches, 157 yards. Julio, get the stretch. Julio Jones was a monster in this game, and of course he just did not get the touchdowns. That's like the story of his career. He had equal usage and even more yards than Calvin Ridley, but Calvin Ridley had the two touchdowns in this game. Calvin Ridley was amazing. 12 targets, 9 catches, 130 yards, and 2 touchdowns for Ridley. Ridley was great and benefited, of course, from the Falcons trailing all game. His first score came on a Seahawks miscommunication that saw Ridley wide open in the end zone. His second score was on the final throws of garbage time. 
So it was a pure garbage time score, but really had the volume, great game script, and benefited from the extra attention that Julio Jones received. This is why I ranked him in the top 12 for fantasy receivers going into the season. That's why I was higher than pretty much every expert on Calvin Ridley, and we had a great start for Calvin Ridley. Uh, fun fact, I actually benched Calvin Ridley for DK Metcalf in one league. Luckily, Metcalf got the score, but Ridley uh, ended up with like 30 plus fantasy points in this game. So yeah, that was it was brutal to have him watching on my bench. So Julio Jones, again, just looked incredible in this game as well, even though he didn't get the touchdowns. He had a, a circus catch, one of the best catches of the week, and he just looked physically dominant. So I'd be pretty stoked if I drafted Julio Jones or Calvin Ridley on my teams at this point. Uh, Hayden Hurst, on the other hand, despite Matt Ryan throwing for 450 yards, only five targets, three catches, 38 yards. We knew this was going to be uh, kind of a slow start for Hayden Hurst. I thought he was going to have a better game than this against the Seattle Seahawks, who were not good at defending the tight end last year. But Jamal Adams kind of had a huge impact in this game and did a number on Hayden Hurst, uh, slowing him down. It was the ideal game flow for pass production for Hayden Hurst. But again, new team. Matt Ryan clearly had more chemistry with Russell Gage, who shockingly had uh, nine catches, uh, 100 yards in this game. And he was the number three target over Hayden Hurst in garbage time. So hopefully that kind of flips as we progress throughout the season and they get more chemistry. Todd Gurley. Was pretty solid in his debut. Uh, as a Falcon, he had a leaping one-yard score early in the game, and he looked healthy, and the Falcons actually featured him early in the game before trailing big time. Brian Hill was the direct backup if you want to handcuff Gurley there. He handled five touches. Gurley only played on less than 50% of the snaps, but I think, again, that was mainly due to game flow. It looked like the Falcons did want to give Gurley more of a workhorse role. So Gurley looking better than I expected going into the season, but again, one of the reasons I fade him is because I think his knee is going to wear down over time. But right now, enjoy Gurley while he lasts. But hey, maybe he'll do this all season. I don't know. Crazier things have happened. All right, moving on to the next game. The Baltimore Ravens picked up right where they left off, dismantling the Cleveland Browns 38-6 to in a blowout win. Lamar Jackson. Sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I am for real. The 2019 MVP was just so dominant in all facets of the game that the Browns just had no answers for this guy. And he was even pulled in the fourth quarter for RG3 because the Ravens were just blowing out the Browns. He could have had an even a bigger game, but J.K. Dobbins, a rookie running back, two short rushing touchdowns. It is worth noting that left tackle Ronnie Stanley did exit this game, did not return. He is an all-pro player, so we'll keep an eye out on that. But Lamar Jackson looked sensational. 275 yards passing, 45 yards rushing from R. Jackson and three touchdowns. And he looked very accurate in the air. Wide receiver Marquise Hollywood Brown also looked pretty good. Six targets, five catches, 101 yards. He got the 100 yards despite the fact that the Ravens were dominating throughout this game. Lamar Jackson connected with Hollywood early in the game for a 47-yard game. They had another pass for 20 yards. And, he, and Marquise Brown was clearly a problem. His speed was for the injury-riddled Brown secondary. The Brown secondary was missing its number two and number three corners. But all things considered, this was a good game for Marquise Brown. He looked healthy. And considering the unfavorable game flow for Marquise Brown, it was nice that he did get to 100 receiving yards. So all systems go for Hollywood Brown. So far, so good. Also, so far, so good for Mark Andrews. Six targets, five catches, 
58 receiving yards, but two touchdowns. That's where Mark Andrews does work in the red zone. He capped off Baltimore's opening drive with a highlight reel one-handed snag in the end zone. Kind of an off-target throw by Lamar Jackson, and Andrews was wide open there. And Lamar Jackson made life very difficult for Andrews, but he pulled down that catch. He had another score later in the red zone, and Andrews had a 23% target share, and he just hasn't missed a beat. Mark Andrews well on his way to a breakout season. I'm very happy that I reached for him in my drafts. And same for Hollywood Brown. The Ravens blew out the Browns, but still Andrews played a career-high 71% of the snaps. As far as the Ravens' running game went, no Ravens running back played more than 30% or 39%, excuse me, of the team's snaps. It was a total running back by committee. This is horrible news for Mark Ingram, who only had 10 rushes, 29 scoreless yards, no catches for Mark Ingram. This was supposed to be early in the season, And against the Browns, this is supposed to be the game where Mark Ingram came out and scored two touchdowns. Instead, J.K. Dobbins got the goal line work and got seven carries, 22 yards, and two touchdowns for J.K. Dobbins. I don't want to say that J.K. Dobbins is this team's goal line back, but I do think that this is a full-blown running back by committee, and I don't think either back is specifically the goal line back or either back is specifically the receiving back. I just think that this is just an equal 50-50 timeshare. And there are going to be games where that's good because the Ravens are such a run-heavy team. They weren't on Sunday, but they normally are. And there will be games where both Mark Ingram and J.K. Dobbins score this year. There will be games where Mark Ingram scores and Dobbins doesn't and vice versa as we saw on Sunday. But I would be not happy if I drafted Mark Ingram on my teams, which I did not and did not advise you to do. But I would be happy if I drafted J.K. Dobbins, which I did have higher than expert consensus. And J.K. Dobbins, it just looks like by the end of the season, he is going to be a potential league winner, especially if something happens to Mark Ingram. Let's move on to the Buffalo Bills easily handling the New York Jets 27-17. Josh Allen had a great week one. I mentioned that he was a top six quarterback play in week one. So hopefully if you had Josh Allen on your teams, which you probably did, honestly, if you followed my draft guide, he and Matt Ryan were the quarterbacks that I was ending up with in a lot of leagues. So I had had a good quarterback day personally in my leagues uh, because of Matt Ryan and because of Josh Allen. But Josh Allen was kind of in a sweet spot on my draft board where after Will Fuller, after Marquise Brown went, I was kind of seeing if Josh Allen or Matt Ryan was available. And Allen looked great on Sunday. It was against the hapless Jets. But we saw we got the full Allen experience on Sunday. 312 passing yards. It was his first 300-yard game, I think, of his entire career. But two touchdowns through the year. He looked very improved as a passer. Uh, but also, he kept his running game going. 14 carries, 57 rushing yards, one rushing touchdown. And he also had two fumble losses on the ground as well. And Josh Allen left a lot of meat on the bone in this game because he missed a wide-open John Brown for a very short touchdown. John Brown was more open than you would ever see in the NFL. There was no one even on the screen near Josh Allen. It was just a perfect play fake. And Josh Allen airmailed it into the stands. It was honestly one of the worst misses you will ever see from an NFL quarterback, but that is part of the Josh Allen experience. As I mentioned, Allen did look improved as a passer. He completed 33 of 46 passes. And again, his first 300-yard game, so he does deserve credit here. And this was the 46 career high attempts were, again, a career high despite the Bills blowing out the Jets all game. So that's good news for fantasy purposes. And he and Josh Allen also left a little, uh, also left more on the field because Cole Beasley was streaking down the field, not naked, of course, but he was open. 
for a 64-yard potential touchdown, but Josh Allen underthrew him there and missed him. So, yeah, three total touchdowns for Josh Allen, but it easily could have been five, And but you're going to get some of these erratic misses with Josh Allen, but he's got the rushing floor. He showed it 14 carries, 57 yards uh, rushing and a score, and he looked improved as a passer. I'd be pretty confident if I drafted Josh Allen on my teams. There will be some nightmare days, but there will also be some days like this where he really helps you win your fantasy matchup. Stephon Diggs, nine targets, good. Eight catches, good. 86 yards, not that great, but overall it was a strong opening for Stephon Diggs. He was mainly used on short routes, as a possession receiver in his debut with, with Buffalo, John Brown was more used on the longer routes. But Allen did look to Diggs in a couple of crucial situations. And the nine targets is good for Stephon Diggs here in this Bills offense, which we thought was going to be more run-heavy than it was in Week 1. The Jets did have a good run defense last year, so that's worth mentioning. And that might be, hence, the passing uh, attack here or the passing volume that we saw. John Brown had a better game than Stephon Diggs. 10 targets, 6 catches, 70 yards, and 1 score. It's not exactly shocking because of the chemistry and rapport that John Brown had with Josh Allen playing together last season. Uh, And again, John Brown could have had a second touchdown in this game, but Josh Allen just sent a pass like into the stands for a wide-open John Brown in the end zone. Would have been a short score. But again, that was just an inexcusable miss by Josh Allen. And the Bills didn't really have to throw it deep in this game to either Stephon Diggs or John Brown because, again, they were leading all game against the worthless Jets. So moving on to the running game, Devin Singletary, Zach Moss, basically an even split. Both backs got nine carries. Singletary did more on his carries. He had 30 rushing yards compared to Zach Moss's 11 rushing yards. They both saw similar receiving as well. But Zach Moss ended up with a receiving touchdown from four yards out. So this is kind of exactly... As I expected going into the season and going into week one that I mentioned multiple times that I thought this was going to be a 50-50 timeshare. But the reason I had Zach Moss on my draft board and I didn't have Devin Singletary is because I thought Zach Moss was going to get the all-important red zone usage. And that's exactly what we saw. Zach Moss handled the ball four times inside the five-yard line. And again, he had the receiving touchdown uh, it wasn't a great game from either running back from an efficiency standpoint. At the beginning, the Jets were a good run defense last year. Uh, and this is despite the Bills kind of leading all game. But I would feel more comfortable with Zach Moss on my team and more confident with Moss on my team rather than Devin Singletary. Uh, I mentioned to fade Devin Singletary in fantasy football this year, and I did so. And Zach Moss, I mentioned to aggressively target him, so I hope you did as well. If something were to happen with Devin Singletary, it's an RBBC right now, but if something were to happen with Singletary, Moss could be a league winner. All right, moving on to the Vegas Raiders, who got a close win against the Carolina Panthers. I think it was 34-30 to in that game. And Derek Carr, 239 passing yards, one touchdown, zero interceptions. Pretty typical Derek Carr stat line, despite all of the upgrades at wide receiver this offseason that we've discussed at, at length here. Uh, Carr's touchdown was beautiful. It was a 23-yard end zone lob to Nelson Aguilar. It was just kind of perfectly placed in good coverage and it was clutch too. It was in the fourth quarter, and this was a game-winning throw. But Carr really only attempted like two other downfield passes, both to Henry Ruggs, and the Raiders were just kind of in command of this contest for three quarters. So Carr was really not forced to overextend himself here. Again, Josh Jacobs stole a lot of Carr's limelight, as we'll get to in a second, and red zone opportunities. Uh, Henry Ruggs, keeping on with the passing game here, 
Henry Ruggs added 11 yards on the ground with two manufactured touches behind the line of scrimmage. He looked pretty good in his debut. He looked fast as expected. Five targets, three catches, 55 receiving yards. And he did exit the second quarter with a left ankle or knee injury, but he did return in the second half. So the box score doesn't really show it much, but I liked the way that Henry Ruggs was used here. And despite Brian Edwards getting a lot more hype than Ruggs this, throughout this offseason and well into training camp, Ruggs seemed to be the Raiders' primary wide receiver in this game. So I'd be pretty content if I drafted Ruggs late in my drafts. Darren Waller, eight targets. He led the team here. Six catches, 45 yards. This is a pretty, this is a line that I would probably get used to if I had Darren Waller on my teams, which I do not because I advise fading him because of all the mouths to feed and because I didn't know if Derek Carr would support all of those mouths in this offense. The Raiders were up 27-15 entering the fourth quarter, so Waller really wasn't needed as much. It is a positive sign at least that he led the team in targets, but again, he really wasn't used in the red zone. So just kind of a, a mad day for Darren Waller. The story of this game was running back Josh Jacobs. Twenty-five carries, ninety-three yards, three rushing touchdowns, and here's arguably the biggest point: six targets, career high, four catches. I think that's also a career high. Forty-six receiving yards, all against the lowly Carolina Panthers. But Josh Jacobs not only showed us why the Carolina defense sucks and is projected to be so bad, he was chalk. In the week one matchup, I mentioned this is a smash week for Josh Jacobs before his schedule gets tough, and it did did come to fruition. Josh Jacobs, three rushing touchdowns. He looked great in this game, but the most important news here is not even the three rushing touchdowns. It was the six targets being a career high. The issue with Josh Jacobs' PPR format was, was he going to get the receiving work? He did get receiving work in this game. I'm very, very happy with this game for Josh Jacobs, even though it was a very favorable matchup against the Panthers. Although it is worth noting that Devontae Booker also saw a lot uh, or plenty of receiving work as well in this game. And it's also worth noting that Trent Brown, right tackle, did exit in the first quarter. Uh, But Josh Jacobs' schedule gets tougher uh, in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, this was a great opening game for Josh Jacobs uh, that put a smile on my face more than one times. I should say three times for all three touchdowns in week one. All right, let's move on to the Carolina Panthers side of the ball. Teddy Bridgewater in his first game as a Panther with Joe Brady and Matt Rule. 270 yards passing, one touchdown, zero interceptions. Very typical Teddy Bridgewater passing line. And he was solid but unspectacular, just as we've always seen from Teddy Bridgewater. And he mainly threw short to intermediate throws. So pretty predictable there as well. He did find Robbie Anderson on a deep 75-yard score. It was only really a 25-yard completion at the catch point, but Anderson put a nice move on the defender with a quick stop and evaded a defender who was kind of breaking on the ball, and that set Anderson up to run free for a 75-yard touchdown. The Panthers' defense was awful as advertised, uh, which helped Teddy Bridgewater air it out. They were trailing for most of the game here. DJ Moore, nine targets, four catches, 54 receiving yards. This is one of the reasons this game kind of demonstrated one of the reasons that I was fading DJ Moore in fantasy this year. Joe Brady's offense just prides itself on spreading the ball out in equal distribution. And DJ Moore was used 
just a little more than Robbie Anderson and Curtis Samuel. So he's still the number one receiver, but it was not an encouraging performance here. Moore had an unsportsmanlike penalty, and he let a few opportunities kind of slip through his hands. He rushed frustrated in this game. Um, He did lead the team in targets again, which is good, but it was a negative game script for much of the contest. It looked like... Again, Joe Brady wanted to get everybody involved. And Curtis Samuel and Robbie Anderson, similar games. I mentioned Samuel just caught a few short passes, but Robbie Anderson did as well, except for that 175-yard score, and that's why he led the team in receiving. But again, there was a lot of spreading of the wealth here for Carolina, and I just don't know if Teddy Bridgewater is going to be able to support DJ Moore with all those guys and keep him as a top-12 receiver, and that's why... I had DJ Moore outside of my top 16 receivers this year, even though his average draft position was wide receiver nine. Uh, He could turn around. We will see. It's only week one. I'm not just declaring myself right, but this was kind of a game that just kind of served to be a perfect example of why I was kind of off on DJ Moore this year in fantasy football. Christian McCaffrey showed why he was the number one overall pick. 23 carries, 96 rushing yards, two touchdowns, three carries, sorry, three catches, 38 receiving yards. McCaffrey was used as the workhorse, which is great. Although I will say, even though he had two kind of short yardage touchdowns, I think it was a six-yard run and a three-yard run uh, for his touchdowns, and McCaffrey was very steady and reliable, I will say that the lack of receiving usage, only three catches, is, is somewhat concerning in this new offense that, again, likes to spread the wealth. But we'll keep an eye on that. I think McCaffrey, obviously going to be a good pick for fantasy football this year. I don't know after watching this game if he's going to end up as the RB1 per se, but I think he's got like a, still has a top five RB floor. You should be very happy still if you drafted Christian McCaffrey one overall. Moving on to the Chicago Bears, and they upset the Detroit Lions on the back of a Mitch Trubisky comeback here. And I'm not going to get too much into Mitch Trubisky. He basically sucked for three quarters in this game. But then the Lions, who were already without cornerback Jeff Okuda, the rookie third overall pick, he missed this game. And then the Lions lost Desmond Trufant and also their nickelbacks, so their number two and three cornerbacks in this game. They both got hurt in the early fourth quarter, and that's exactly when Mitch Trubisky kind of sprung this comeback. And the Lions offense stalled out, and Mitch Trubisky was actually able to just kind of carve up this defense and move the ball down the field because of all the injuries to the cornerback position. So I am not treating Mitch Trubisky as a streamable quarterback yet. I still think he's the old Mitch Trubisky of old. And it's worth noting that Mitch Trubisky, if there's any, there's probably two opponents in his entire career that he's had success in, and that success against, I should say. And that is against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That one crazy day, he threw like five touchdowns. And also against the Detroit Lions. He's thrown for three scores in three of the last four matchups against the Detroit Lions. I think that this was a pretty fluky performance from Trubisky. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about his fantasy value or his statistics. Moving on to the passing game, though. I mentioned the three cornerbacks getting hurt. So Allen Robinson, nine targets, five catches, 74 receiving yards. His nine targets were uh, game high here, but... It actually wasn't that great of a game considering this was probably going to be Trubisky's one of his best games of the year, uh, at least best quarters of of his year in the fourth quarter. And I mentioned the three, again, the three starting cornerbacks for the Detroit Lions all out for this game. So Allen Robinson should have been better than this 74 receiving yard stat line uh, suggests. He did have a contested catch that he just barely couldn't hang on to. And he did have one of the plays of the game with a diving catch. And he had an end zone target as well, 
But again, pretty underwhelming day from Allen Robinson. And similar to DJ Moore, this is kind of why I was off on Allen Robinson in fantasy football this year. A long season to play, though. But Anthony Miller, my bold prediction, or perhaps my boldest prediction of my entire bold prediction podcast was that Anthony Miller was going to outproduce, score more fantasy points than Allen Robinson this season. So far, so good for week one, although I'm really regretting that bold prediction because Anthony Miller only played on 42% of the team's snaps. And again, Anthony Miller did nothing in this game until the Lions lost their top two cornerbacks that were actually playing in the fourth quarter due to injuries. So he kind of took advantage of a ideal, an ideal situation there for Anthony Miller. And he really didn't do much else. So I would be a little hesitant on using him going forward just because he had the good fantasy day. I'm not quite there yet, in other words, saying that this is going to be a breakout season for my boy Anthony Miller, although I do want it to be. David Montgomery in the running game. Montgomery was questionable going into this game because of the growing strain. It's surprising that he healed up quickly, and he actually looked pretty good in this game. He lost some carries to Tariq Cohen because of the negative game flow. The Bears were trailing throughout the second half. And perhaps he lost some touches because he just maybe isn't fully 100% yet. But he was healthy enough, and it was a pretty encouraging game. I would just be fearful of when are the Bears ever going to get a positive game script. I don't know. But if I did draft Montgomery late after the injury, I feel pretty good because I think that he will lead this Bears team in usage. I wish the Bears would give him more goal line carries. The Bears got to the goal line uh, a few times in this game. And they just kept throwing like fades to Jimmy Graham and and just not letting Montgomery just kind of run up the gut. And he's such a strong running back that I just kind of wish that they would do that. But they did not. Montgomery did have an end zone target in this game that fell incomplete. But other than that, just the 64 rushing yards on 13 carries. And that's it. But yeah, he looked healthy. I think he is a flex play in favorable matchups. Ew, David. Jimmy Graham actually looked decent in this game and he was using a red zone he had one touchdown called back in this game as well but I'm not racing to get him in free agency Uh, moving on to the Detroit Lions Matt Stafford pretty weird game from him 297 passing yards one touchdown one interception the interception was was god awful it was a forced pass to Marvin Jones and it was late in the game that kind of allowed the Bears to come back in this game and the Lions just could not move the ball in the final frame to close out this game they couldn't get first downs But Stafford did find TJ Hawkinson on the goal line for a touchdown early, and he did deliver what looked to be a game-winning drive. And he brought the Bears all the way down to about the 15-yard line or 20-yard line and put them in position to win. And he even delivered this perfect potential game-winning touchdown to DeAndre Swift in the end zone with seconds left in the game. But DeAndre Swift dropped the ball. And that was not on Stafford. Stafford looked good but not great in this game. He usually does have a boneheaded mistake. And again, Kenny Galladay was out for this game. So that was making matters more difficult for Stafford. But yeah, once Galladay returns, I feel pretty good about using Stafford going forward. Marvin Jones without Kenny Galladay, eight targets, four catches, 55 yards. Didn't do much despite the Bears not having great cornerbacks. Cornerbacks kind of the weakness of their defense. And Jones had a sensational catch in this game like one of the catches of the weeks and he had a 21 yard catch in a mismatch with a linebacker but other than that he didn't really do much at all tj hawkinson bigger story here kenley galladay was out but tj hawkinson five targets five catches 56 yards and a score 
And Hawkinson was actually facing constant double teams. Yeah, I, I, I kid you not. He's facing double teams with Kenny Galladay out. And this is only a second-year tight end. The Bears focused on stopping him, and he still produced given the opportunities, when given the opportunities. He boxed out a safety and made a contested catch for in traffic for his touchdown. And he was also run out of bounds at the two-yard line on one of his catches, so he could have had a second touchdown. So so pretty promising game for TJ Hawkinson in what I think is going to be a second-year breakout season for Hawkinson. Uh, on to the Detroit Lions running game. This was mostly a running back by committee, but unfortunately the leader of that running back by committee was Adrian Peterson, who just got signed off the street. They spent a second-round pick on on Johnson two years ago. They spent a second-round pick last year, or this August, April, excuse me, on DeAndre Swift, but Adrian Peterson just signed off the street, leads the team in rushing and, and touches, 14 carries for Peterson, 93 rushing yards, three catches for 20 yards for Adrian Peterson. I'm not quite racing to the waiver wire to sign or to add Adrian Peterson on my teams if he was dropped, but but this is not good news for Carry on Johnson. Carry on my son. Or DeAndre Swift. And Swift was mostly limited to passing downs, although Swift did get a goal line carry that he kind of cashed in because the Lions were in their two-minute offense, which contains DeAndre Swift. They didn't really sub out. They were kind of in the hurry up there. But unfortunately, the story of Swift's game was that he dropped a game-winning touchdown with seconds left. And what a disastrous drop for the rookie in his NFL debut. I think that Swift is tough to justify using, even in PPR formats going forward. He looks like he's going to just be this team's pass-catching running back. And this was the fear Going into the season about DeAndre Swift, you can never trust Matt Patricia. He loves his RBBCs. Okay, let's move on to the Jacksonville Jaguars. They stunned the Indianapolis Colts 27-20 with a come-from-behind victory thanks to Gardner Minshew. Completed 19 of 20 passes in his first game with pass-happy coordinator Jay Gruden. And Minshew pulled off the upset by extending plays outside the pocket, hitting 10 different receivers. And he looks like a legitimate NFL quarterback in this impressive outing. I saw somebody tweet earlier. I forgot who it was, so I apologize for that. But they tweeted that Gardner Minshew is playing and looks exactly like we thought Baker Mayfield was going to be when he was drafted number one overall. And that's just kind of sad there, but it's just such a great tweet because it's just very true. I mean, Gardner Minshew's playing style just exactly like a, honestly, a better version of Baker Mayfield. And that's just unfortunate for the Browns. And I'm realizing right now that I forgot to do the Browns in my Ravens in Browns game. Uh, I guess you'll have to forgive me there. They were pretty irrelevant on Sunday. And I will go ahead and just talk about Mayfield really quickly in the Browns. They really struggled to make plays uh, against a Baltimore Ravens defense that looked much improved. And Mayfield took some sacks that he shouldn't have taken. He couldn't connect with Odell Beckham. The Browns left tackle Jedrick Wills, who they spent their 10th overall pick on. He left with a leg injury in this game. It was just a really disaster game. First game under Kevin Stefanski in a blowout loss. And Mayfield even struggled in garbage time. And there was a lot of it, which is just not good at all. Odell Beckham, also, he led the team in targets. 10 targets, 3 catches, 22 yards for Odell Beckham. 
And he posted a 25.6% target share, which is good, but Baker Mayfield just struggled to hit Beckham and just a number of deep passes. They lacked chemistry. Same story as last season. Beckham drew back-to-back pass interference calls on Marlon Humphrey, and he drew a holding call on Tavon Young. So the stat line didn't really show how impactful Beckham was in this game. Beckham looked healthy and pretty good, but he's going to need to do more from a fantasy perspective. I think the games will pick up. But yeah, not looking, not a great first opening look for Odell Beckham. Jarvis Landry, he was reportedly not going to play all the snaps because he's probably not 100% from his offseason hip surgery. Kevin Stefanski said that his playing time might be dictated by game flow. He had six targets, five catches, 61 yards, zero scores. That's a very typical Jarvis Landry game. And Landry did show a rapport with Baker Mayfield on possession routes, but That was really all it was. Mayfield really mainly looked underneath to Jarvis Landry and, you know, a game's worth of garbage time. So nothing really to see here. Uh, I'm still okay with starting Odell Beckham, you know, of course, over Jarvis Landry. I wouldn't be starting Jarvis Landry yet until we see more uh, because of the hip. But hopefully Odell Beckham has a bounce back game in week two. As far as the running game goes, there really wasn't much of it because, again, this was a total blowout from the get-go. But Nick Chubb started and got the first two touches, but Kareem Hunt quickly found himself on the field and actually outcarried Chubb due to the terrible game script in Cleveland. Chubb did catch a pass or two in this game, uh, 10 carries, 60 yards, so he actually was very efficient, but the Browns just couldn't establish the run here because they were trailing all game. Hunt played 46% of the snaps while Chubb played 51% of the snaps. Chubb looked pretty good, but again, no game flow for him, and Kareem Hunt had the game flow in his favor as the primary pass catching back. The Browns were getting smacked all game. Kareem Hunt, 13 carries, 72 yards. So the running game was efficient when they did run the ball. But Kareem Hunt, only four catches, nine yards. So this was just a terrible game for Cleveland all around. So hopefully they can pick things up next week against the Cincinnati Bengals. We're on to Cincinnati. It's nothing about the past, nothing about the future. Right now we're preparing for Cincinnati. Okay, moving back to the Jacksonville Jaguars. I talked about Gardner Minshew. Let's talk about G.J. Chark. Only three targets, three catches, 25 yards, and a touch. So he made the most of his targets. But Keelan Cole and LaVisca Chenault, LaVisca Chenault out-targeted D.J. Chark, surprisingly, in this game. And Chark only saved his day with a six-yard score early in the game. And Gardner Minshew only, again, attempted 20 throws in this game. The Colts kind of dominated time of possession. So hopefully there's bigger games for DJ Chark, but not a great opening start for him. And James Robinson, running back, undrafted free agent, who became the starter once Leonard Fournette was cut. It looks like James Robinson was the reason that Leonard Fournette got cut because he looked much quicker than expected. And he had a nice day. He's 16 carries. 62 yards rushing, no touchdowns, but one catch for 28 receiving yards. Chris Thompson had a few useless catches, but James Robinson was really the workhorse here, and he should be added in every fantasy format. Okay, let's get to the Colts side of the ball. Phillip Rivers. Three hundred sixty-three passing yards, one touchdown, two interceptions against the Jaguars. He threw two boneheaded interceptions that allowed the Jaguars to kind of stay competitive in this game and eventually pull off this upset. Rivers was otherwise pretty sharp, albeit against a bad defense. He peppered his running backs with targets like he does, 
and they actually received a 37% target share, which is a massive amount for running backs. But Rivers did give the team a chance to win, driving Indy down the field with less than a minute to spare. But two T.Y. Hilton drops ended the drive and ended the game. T.Y. Hilton, nine targets, four catches, 53 yards. Bad game for him. The, again, the two drops on the final two plays, one of them a deep shot along the boundary, were brutal. And he only had a 19.5% target share because, again, Rivers really peppered those running backs. Paris Campbell, nine targets as well, just like T.Y. Hilton. Six catches, 71 yards. He had a better game than T.Y. Hilton. Campbell was a popular sleeper, and it looked like he is going to emerge. He looks like he's going to wake up, I should say. He looks healthy, uh, showing immediate rapport with Phillip Rivers in the middle of the field. And he's a great athlete, so I would be pretty happy having Paris Campbell on my team at least on my bench. The real story of this game is that Marlon Mack went down with an Achilles injury and is out for the season. And I'm going to have to pay my respects because we're probably not going to hear this soundbite for the rest of the season. And it's so sad. But he unfortunately is not returning this year. There will be no return of the Mack. However, there is good news for fantasy football purposes, and you know where I'm going with this. That is Jonathan Taylor. Taylor initially did nothing in this game. He was the third string running back, but Marlon Mack's injury just opened things up for Taylor to be a league-winning pick and potential fantasy football MVP behind this dominant Colts offensive line. And with Phillip Rivers peppering his running backs with targets, as I always say, Jonathan Taylor, six targets, six catches, 67 receiving yards, only 22 rushing yards on nine carries. And, and Taylor was used in tandem equally with Naeem Hines after Marlon Mack got hurt. I think they had the exact amount of snaps in the second half. But my guess is it won't be long before Taylor is the bell cow back in this Colts offense and you're able to get him in the third or fourth round. I was higher on Taylor than consensus ADP, but I wish I was even higher. I wish I had him on a lot more teams than I do because things are looking up for Taylor. Again, he literally could be a fantasy football MVP. And this is very, 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 very exciting if you drafted Jonathan Taylor on your team because the Wait will not be nearly as long as anticipated, and Marlon Mack will be out of the equation. So all he has to do is fend off Naeem Hines. Now, don't get me wrong. Naeem Hines is not going anywhere. Naeem Hines, seven rushes, 28 rushing yards a score. He also had a touchdown receiving on eight catches for 45 yards. Naeem Hines is going to be the primary passing down back for the Colts, and they're going to sprinkle him in on rushing yards too. It's going to be a 50-50 split probably, just as it was at first without Marlon Mack. Eventually, I think Taylor is going to be the focal point of this offense, but Naeem Hines is not going anywhere anytime soon. He's valuable in PPR formats, so I would be putting in waiver wire claims on Marlon Mack, oh, sorry, on Naeem Hines if he is in free agency. Hines had a great game, and he was actually used in the red zone here, uh, But though it is worth noting that Jonathan Taylor one of his catches went out at the two-yard line, and Naeem Hines actually came in and scored a few plays later. So, so yeah, interesting usage here, but the point is that Phillip Rivers peppering his targets with running backs is huge for their value, and obviously Marlon Mack going down, also huge 
for their value. Jonathan Taylor, the big winner here, but Naeem Hines will have short-term value for sure. He should be rostered in even 10-team formats. But of course, whether you start him or not will depend on whether you think the Jaguars can actually remain competitive in these games. All right, let's move on to the Green Bay Packers. They wrecked the Minnesota Vikings 43-34 in the highest scoring game of the week. Shockingly, I thought this was going to be a defensive affair, but Aaron Rodgers was prime Aaron Rodgers in this game. He was absolutely flawless in this one. It could have been an even bigger day. Four touchdowns, 364 yards, and again, it could have been a bigger day if Marcus Valdez-Scantling didn't drop an easy 61-yard touchdown. We're talking about a potential five-touchdown, 400-yard day from Aaron Rodgers. It could have been one of the best games that we'll see from a quarterback all season. And it was definitely the best games that Rodgers ever played with Matt LaFleur. He just had 300, he three 300-yard games with LaFleur last season in the run-committed offense. But Aaron Rodgers was a man on a mission. He looked motivated following the selection of Jordan Love. I thought that this could happen but I wish I would have been more aggressive uh, trying to draft Aaron Rodgers in fantasy football this year because it looks like he is going to be a significant, significant value. And you were able to get him at quarterback 13 in ADP here. So well done if you saw the discount Aaron Rodgers, the discount double check, I should say, and drafted him, pulled the trigger there. It is worth noting the Vikings were missing uh, Daniil Hunter, their best pass rusher, and it was an entirely new cornerback group. They lost all three of their starting cornerbacks in free agency over the offseason, but Rodgers just kind of picked them apart. Devontae Adams flooded with targets, 17 targets, 14 catches, 156 yards, two touchdowns for Devontae Adams, the best receiver week of the week. Adams had nine catches for 103 yards and a touch at halftime. The Packers just spanked the Vikings, so they just kind of ran out the clock in the final 30 minutes, but that didn't stop Adams from getting another short touchdown from one yard out. Again, the Vikings had lost their starting three cornerbacks in free agency, so Adams just had a total field day against the Vikings, and Adams even could have had a third touchdown, but it was knocked out of his hands at the goal line early in the game. This is a whopping 38.6% target share in week one for Devontae Adams. This is exactly why I rank Devontae Adams in my top 10 overall and, of course, as my number one ride receiver over Michael Thomas, which was very controversial at the time. I'm glad I did so. Devontae Adams looks like he's going to feast this season. Alan Lazard and Marcus Valdez-Scantling both caught touchdowns. Scantling was, is more of their deep threat, and Alan Lazard more of kind of a possession guy. You don't even know my real name. I'm the Lizard King. I wouldn't feel, I think both of them are probably worth rostering in 12-team leagues, but I wouldn't feel comfortable starting either of them until we get some more clarity on who really is the preferred target. They kind of split as the number two option behind Devontae Adams. Aaron Jones, 16 rushes, 66 yards, one score, four catches, 10 yards. This was kind of what I expected out of Aaron Jones for most of these games going into the season. Jamal Williams saw 11 touches behind Aaron Jones. And the two kind of split work in the first half before Jones kind of took over in clock-killing mode in the second half. And Jones was stuffed early on the goal line. And he actually had a touchdown called back before finally being able to cash in in the fourth quarter. So it actually looks like, you know, one of the big reasons I faded Aaron Jones this year is because of touchdown regression. But it looks like he has a chance to repeat or, or come close to his lofty touchdown total of 19 in 2019. But overall, kind of average day for Aaron Jones. Moving on to the Minnesota Vikings, they were trailing for the vast majority of this game. So Kirk Cousins 
through two garbage time touchdowns. Adam Thielen was the recipient of both of those scores. Eight targets, six receptions, 110 yards, and two touchdowns. Cousins attempted only five first-half passes. So things were not looking good for Adam Thielen in this passing game until the Packers developed this huge lead. And the Packers' defense just kind of let up in the second half, and Thielen was able to dominate in the fourth quarter. His touchdowns were mostly meaningless and in garbage time, but Adam Thielen looked great in this game when he was actually utilized, which is good. So a great start for Adam Thielen, who I ranked as a top-five receiver, receiver five, higher than pretty much any expert in this industry. Uh, moving on to Dalvin Cook. I was low on Dalvin Cook, but Dalvin Cook had a pretty fortunate game here, right? He was a non-factor in the receiving game. He only had two targets, one catch for negative two yards. And when that was very odd because the Vikings were getting blown out all day, but all things considered, it was a pretty good day for Dalvin Cook given the game flow because, again, the Vikings were getting destroyed and Cook was able to score on two two-point conversions and 12 carries, 50 yards and two touchdowns. So he found the end zone a total of four times. So pretty great start, all things considered, for Dalvin Cook. Irv Smith, one of my sleeper tight ends, did not do much. He played even behind Kyle Rudolph in the passing game, so I was not happy about that. And Justin Jefferson, as expected, still behind BC Johnson, Tajay Sharp on the receiving depth chart, so not usable in fantasy football. And I think you can part ways with Irv Smith as well if you drafted him late as your tight end too. All right, moving on to the most boring game of the week, and that was the Patriots defeating the Dolphins 21-11 in a low-scoring game thanks to Cam Newton. Actually, it wasn't low-scoring thanks to Cam Newton, but it was a game that the Patriots were able to win thanks to Cam Newton. And why in the world did the NFL let Bill Belichick get Cam Newton? Like, how different would this team be? And how much worse would the Patriots be with Jared Stidham at quarterback? I don't know if they would have won this game, honestly. I really don't. And this was against the lowly Dolphins. So you can imagine. I mean, Cam Newton, I just don't understand why teams let the Patriots do that. If I was a competitor of the Patriots, like in the AFC, like the Ravens or the Chiefs, I would assign Cam Newton as my backup to Mahomes and Lamar Jackson just so the Patriots couldn't get him. If I were a division rival, like the Bills or the Dolphins or the Jets, just bring in Cam Newton for competition. Just bring him in so the Patriots can't have him. Clearly, that was a huge mistake. Cam Newton, he looked healthy. His shoulder looked fine. He completed 15 of 19 passes. And and on the ground, he was sensational. 15 carries, 75 rushing yards, and two touchdowns on the ground. The Patriots attempted 40-plus runs as a team. And Newton was literally the reason that the Patriots won the game. The Dolphins just could not stop him. So that's good news if you did draft Newton in your fantasy football league, but we will see how better defenses than the Dolphins handle Cam Newton. I'm still treating him as kind of a backup fantasy quarterback in that 12 to 24 range until we start seeing a little bit more against non-cupcake opponents. The passing game was pretty weird, or I should say non-existent, because again, the Patriots ran more than 40 times in this game. I'll just talk about the running game first. The running game is something you want no part of. James White, Sony Michelle. Rex Burkhead all saw pretty equal usage. It was just a total cluster timeshare there. And Damian, Will- Damian Harris is on IR for the first three games. He's going to come back and from his hand injury and make this even more complicated. Honestly, it sounds harsh because I know everyone drafted Patriots running back hoping they'd get the right one. There probably won't be a right one. Cam Newton 
We saw him steal two red zone uh, touchdowns in this game. I'm glad that I faded the Patriots running game in like all my drafts. It's just not a running game I want to be a part of, even though they're going to be a run-heavy team. I think because they're so run-heavy, they're going to keep each other fresh by sharing carries, and that's how they're going to try to beat teams this year is run game and defense, and it will be a platoon. And Damian Harris is going to muddy the waters even further. I don't know if I would have a Patriots running back rostered on my team if I was in a 12-team league. I don't think they're worth rostering at all, and that even includes James White. And that might come back to bite me, but if I had James White on my team, and he's probably the lead back out of this committee, I would probably be considering cutting him for like a hot free agent ad. But we'll get more to that tomorrow in the waiver wire show. Uh, this passing game, not really used much. Julian Edelman, seven catches, or excuse me, seven targets, five catches, 57 yards. Pretty quiet day from him. Edelman was a better real-life player than he was in fantasy. He only played in three wide receiver sets, which is weird. He actually didn't start this game. Nikhil Harry and Demir Bird started this game. Edelman only really came in when they used three wide receivers, which was not that often because they were in two wide receiver sets a lot because they were running so much. So very concerning for Edelman, although when he was in the game, he was utilized. It was a 37% target share for Edelman in this passing game, but he just wasn't needed a lot, even though he was efficient. Uh, Nikhil Harry... Six targets, five catches, 39 receiving yards. Similar usage to Julian Edelman, more of a possession guy for Cam Newton. He actually was reaching out or was about to reach out for the end zone on one play, reach out for the pylon, but then the ball was stripped out of his hands by Jerome Baker and it caused it to be a touchback. So he lost a fumble in this game as well. But Nikhil Harry, definitely somebody to monitor in free agency. He could have a a role going forward as the Patriots need to pass more. But yeah, the only Patriot I would feel even remotely comfortable having on my team right now is Cam Newton. And if you followed my draft guide, you don't have Cam Newton or you don't have any other Patriot. So that is not your concern. Let's move on to the Miami Dolphins. And if you followed my draft guide, you probably only have one Miami Dolphin on your team. That is Mike Jasicki. Jasicki did not do much in this opening game. Four targets, three catches, 30 yards. So six PPR points. But Jasicki really didn't have much of a chance against New England secondary. And particularly Ryan Fitzpatrick was just really bad in this game. Zero touchdowns, three interceptions. But at least Jasicki played the big slot receiver role, which is somewhat expected in Chan Gailey's offense, seeing as Albert Wilson, Alan Hearns both opted out for the 2020 season. I actually think the role is there. Will the usage be there? I'm not really sure. It's worth noting that Devontae Parker exited in the third quarter with a hamstring injury. So that might help Mike Jasicki get an uptick in usage there, and maybe a new quarterback would also help. But I would hold Jasicki one or two more weeks. Uh, I'm not giving up on him yet, just because this is a Dolphins offense that just doesn't have a running game. It is Chan Gailey's offense, which is historically uh, pass-friendly, and Jasicki was playing the right role in this game, even though he did not get flooded with targets. It was also a tough matchup for Jasicki. I mentioned Devontae Parker. He exited four catches, on four targets, 47 yards before exiting the third quarter. You can't use Devontae Parker. I told people not to start him in the preview pod. You can't be using him. And it's not just because of New England uh, defense. It's just because he's not fully healthy yet. He's had the hamstring issue in training camp going into this game. So, yeah, we can't use him until he is fully healthy. 
the beneficiary of this will be Preston Williams. Seven targets leading the team, but only two catches, 41 yards. That was actually mainly because Stephon Gilmore was mainly covering Preston Williams in this game and not Devontae Parker. So Williams really did not have a good shot at production with Ryan Fitzpatrick again uh, being terrible. But, but Williams is coming off the ACL tear as well, which would make me fade him. But now he actually has a good opportunity to produce because if Devontae Parker's not fully healthy, we could see kind of the reverse effect that we saw last year where Devontae Parker exploded once Preston Williams went down last year. Now, if Devontae Parker's not at full strength, maybe we'll see Preston Williams be the number one receiver on this team. I would be pretty happy if I drafted Preston Williams late in drafts, which I did not, but I would be happy if he was on one of my teams because I think his role is going to increase and I would be pretty optimistic that he becomes uh, pretty fantasy relevant. And speaking of... Fantasy relevant. Who is not fantasy relevant was the entire Dolphins running game. Jordan Howard started this game, received the first five carries, went nowhere. Doesn't really fit into Chan Gailey's uh, pass offense, and he likes his running backs to be able to catch the ball. I am okay with cutting Jordan Howard, uh, and I'll talk more about that tomorrow. Mike Gaskin actually led this team in rushing, and he is, I believe, he's a seventh round pick, and. He's somebody that will keep an eye out on for waiver wire. We'll talk more about him tomorrow. He had like 40 rushing yards on, I believe it was eight attempts or something like that, maybe 10 attempts. But he was used ahead of Matt Breida, who I'd also be comfortable dropping. Matt Breida just didn't, he was like the third or fourth running back that came into this game. I think he came in behind even Patrick Laird, uh, who was just a nobody in fantasy football. So Matt Breida, Jordan Howard, the way we thought this Dolphins running game was going to go. You can go ahead and cut both of those players after week one, in my opinion. I think uh, Mike Gaskin's going to be the leader of this committee, but ultimately just looks like a committee for a bad team, which is not great for fantasy football value. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that Lynn Bowden uh, was just traded for by the Dolphins. He's a pass catching back, so he'll, he'll muddy these waters even further. So yeah. Moving on to the last game, and my voice is, this is a lot, this is a long episode today. These recaps are uh, lots of talking for me, so uh, I'm kind of losing it on my voice if you can't already tell. But the Washington football team upset the Philadelphia Eagles 27-17. to This was an upset that uh, I surprisingly was able to call on my preview show where I said, I wouldn't say I called it. I said that I wouldn't be surprised if the Washington football team pulled off the upset. That was my exact quote. I don't think that's exactly calling the upset. It's mainly just calling the opportunity for an upset. The Eagles were favored by like seven in this game. So I guess it was a semi-good call, not a great call. But either way, I should have had more conviction in this. And either way, it looked actually dumb because Carson Wentz came out on fire and threw two touchdowns pretty immediately. He was finding his tight ends a lot. Zach Ertz called a short touchdown in this game. Didn't really do much after that, which was very concerning because Dallas Goddard, nine targets, Eight catches, 101 yards for Dallas Goddard, and a score. And Goddard was just constantly running wide open against the Washington's linebackers and safeties, especially in the first half before the Eagles' offense imploded, which I'll get to in a second. Goddard drew two more targets than Zach Ertz. And Ertz is kind of in the middle of like a contract dispute right now. He's unhappy with his contract. I think he knows the writing is on the wall wall for Goddard to overtake him. I don't think he's going to be— this might be his last season in Philadelphia, but only 18 yards— for Zach Ertz. And if he wouldn't have had that short first quarter touchdown, it would have been a disastrous game for Zach Ertz. I would be willing to ship him out or to try to trade. You can't really sell high because 
you know, because of Dallas Goddard, but I would be willing to try to see what I could get for Zach Ertz. I think there's going to be a changing of the guard soon. They're either going to split work pretty evenly, which will cancel each other both out in games, or or Dallas Goddard will become this team's top tight end by the end of the season. Zach Ertz, his fantasy value has always come from volume and targets in the last couple of years. I just don't think we're going to see that there with a healthy Deshaun Jackson, with Alshon Jeffrey coming back, presumably in three weeks, with Jalen Rager uh, being able to play in week one. But moving on, moving away from the tight ends and on to the quarterback here, Carson Wentz, again, he started hot, but then eventually the Eagles' offensive line imploded against a Washington fearsome front seven that eventually imposed its will on this Eagles O-line that was without Brandon Brooks, right guard, and without right tackle Lane Johnson. I knew that once Lane Johnson was ruled inactive for this game, which was after my preview, that this was going to be trouble for the Philadelphia Eagles. Washington sacked Carson Wentz eight times, and Wentz actually carved up the Washington secondary with his tight ends in the first quarter, but he just had no time to operate for the final three quarters. Wentz was aggressive, with downfield throws in the second frame, and he was kind of trailing uh, in some of the fourth quarter, but he completed only 24 of 42 throws. Again, this was a tough day at the office for Carson Wentz, who was missing two, probably his two best offensive linemen. His splits have always been historically better when Lane Johnson plays, so we got to hope that he comes back uh, next week, and we also got to hope that Miles Sanders comes back next week. Miles Sanders, inactive for this game. Boston Scott, Got the start, 32 rushing yards for Scott, 19 receiving yards. Was not a great day, and he was just kind of bottled up by Washington's dominant defensive front. And he also got hurt later in that game, and that's kind of to-be-determined situation there. Corey Clement would be the backup if uh, Miles Sanders and Boston Scott can't go, but I think Sanders and hopefully Lane Johnson will be able to play in Week 2. Lastly is the Eagles receiving game. Other than the tight ends, Deshaun Jackson, I mentioned in my preview pod that the, he was so chalky in week one like everyone expected him to blow up against the Washington football team secondary because he did in week one last year that I thought the reverse was going to happen I think that uh, the Washington football team was going to spend considerable amount of coverage and defensive attention focused on Deshaun Jackson that's exactly what they did even though they were without their top corner Kendall Fuller I still thought Deshaun Jackson was going to have a good game just not a great game uh, but the football team did a good job Limiting the big plays there. Deshaun Jackson, seven targets, two catches, 46 yards, and a pretty dull opening game performance, uh, which was hurt, of course, by the Eagles' lack of offensive line, lack of protection for Carson Wentz. So Wentz didn't have a lot of time in the second half to drop back and throw deep, uh, seeing as he was missing Lane Johnson and Brandon Brooks. And Brandon Brooks is out for the season, by the way, but Lane Johnson will make a big deal when he comes back. Jalen Rager played in this game despite a questionable tag with the shoulder injury. Four targets, only one catch, but it was a 55-yard beautiful over-the-shoulder snag. He displayed his speed, and he blew by Washington defenders on that play. And again, the Eagles' offensive line issues meant that they couldn't really have time to develop the deep passing game there with Jalen Rager. But I think Rager is definitely worth an add in free agency, and I'll get to more of that tomorrow. Okay, that was the longest podcast episode I have ever done. And I think that it covers all of the week one games. Well, there's two games tonight, actually, which I've already previewed in my preview episode. You can check that out. You can check that out if you want. That will be the last two games, the Monday night games that are tonight. They will be at the end of the preview episode from yesterday.
All right, that'll conclude today's episode. I hope you learned a lot. I hope I gave you everything you need to know about week one and even stuff going forward. If you enjoy listening to this podcast today, please, please, please hit the subscribe button and give me a favorable rating or review. That kind of stuff really helps a young podcast grow. I really appreciate your continued support, everyone. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.